Welcome to Audacious Water, the podcast about how to create a world of water abundance for everyone. I'm John Sabo, director of the Bywater Institute at Tulane University. On today's show, harmonizing hydrology to better predict water. My guest is Ed Clark, director of NOAA's National Water Center and the deputy director of the National Weather Service's Office of Water Prediction. Ed is certainly a water enthusiast. He grew up kayaking in Utah and now integrates his passion for water into his work, creating the future of our nation's water forecasting capabilities. Coming up, I talk with Ed about the National Water Center and the National Water Model, how new data science plays a role in water forecasting, and how that data science will help better inform people about their risks for floods. Ed, welcome to the show. Happy to be here, John. Let's jump right in. National Water Center. Tell us what the National Water Center does and and why Alabama. Well, let me start with how we got here. Back in 2007, 2008, NOAA received a directed appropriation to build a center of excellence for severe weather and water in the southeast. Fast forward to 2010, coincident with the appropriation, we have been working with the colleagues at the U.S. Geological Survey and colleagues from the Army Corps of Engineers on something that we call the Integrated Water Resources Science and Service. This is a consortium of the three agencies that actually grew in 2015 to include FEMA, but it recognizes that these federal agencies have a unique partnership in forecasting, measuring, managing, and responding to water issues across the country. Tell me more about what it does. Yeah, that's all. that's good background. So the Water Center is part of NOAA's National Weather Service. We're a complement to the 13 river forecast centers and 122 weather forecast offices that have a responsibility for providing the official forecasts as well as the watch warning advisory products that come out of the, the local weather forecast offices for their local communities. The Water Center augments those capabilities. It allows us to go deeper, to develop uh, and embrace new technologies. For example, uh, later this year, we were releasing for the first time real-time forecast flood inundation maps for 10% of the country. We've been doing this for the last four or five years and are now working with our river forecast centers and weather forecast offices to ensure the staff are trained. It's just one of the many enabling technologies that we are developing here at the Water Center that we deploy through the network of 13 RFCs and 122 weather forecast offices. We also have an operational component here of the National Water Center, our Water Predictions and Operations Division, and they act as a national clearinghouse for that national view of the nation's water resources from floods to droughts and other challenges in between, as well as providing a reachback capability for the local and regional offices, those weather forecast offices, river forecast centers. Got it. So let's dig in a little bit more. You said that at the National Water Center, you have these capabilities to kind of dig deeper and to explore new tech, let's explore each one of those one by one. What about the deeper piece? What's, what can you do that we couldn't do without the National Water Center before? So there's, there's three areas I want to highlight. The first is the National Water Model. When we began planning for the National Water Center, it wasn't just what we could do with the existing technology, but it was the opportunity to showcase the Water Center and to create capabilities that went beyond what the existing uh, forecasting capabilities at the time were. For example, The River Forecast Centers uh, produce forecasts at about 3,600 locations. They're generally U.S. geological gauges. Sometimes they're inflow points to a Bureau of Reclamation facility or an Army Corps of Engineers dam. 
But it's about 3,600 locations. If you connect those locations from upstream to downstream to the terminuses either at the coast or inland bodies of water like the Great Salt Lake, that's about 110,000 miles of river. We've developed something called the National Water Model. This is a comprehensive continental scale capability that forecasts over 3.4 million miles of streams around the country. And it's this capability that allows us to provide an extensive and expansive view of the change and the way water falls, where it rains, where it precipitates, where the snowpack creates runoff, where it, how it moves through the system, where what it sees as it goes from the you know, headwaters in the Rockies down through the Great Plains to the Mississippi, not to the coast, and where it ends up, where water comes from and where it ends up on the coast has many implications for water quality issues, for, such as harmful algal blooms, uh, hypoxic zone development. So the National Water Model is one of these capabilities that has really, really allowed us to go well beyond where we were with the 13 river forecast centers. Got it. So let me ask a further question on the National Water Model. What um, I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with land service models. We use a bunch of different ones, tend to take a agnostic approach to that. And I know the trials and tribulations that come along with developing something at a continental scale like CONUS. What have been the major hurdles in in development of the National Water Model for use in National Weather Center work? So the current formulation of the National Water Model is based off of the Wharf Hydro Land Surface Model. And that's a homogenous view of storm flow generation and snowmelt processes across the country. That homogeneity in the model will be corrected or fixed as we uh, embrace something and develop what we call the next-gen national water modeling framework. This isn't a model, it's more of a framework that allows us to integrate multiple different models to use the right formulation for a model in the desert southwest that may be different from what we use in the northeast or the upper Great Plains, and certainly would be different than what we would deploy for storm flow or runoff generation processes in the Caribbean or Hawaii or even Alaska. And we could add other modules like variable snow models that may work better, such as Utah Energy Balance model in the Intermountain West, uh, or glacial processes models that we need to account for in the Northwest and even up into Alaska. And so that that challenge of trying to represent in a single formulation the complexity of our nation's hydrology is an opportunity to grow and expand. And I'll say this, that that as we leverage these bipartisan infrastructure law resources to build the next-gen framework, our hope is that it's not just a framework that's used by NOAA, but it's a framework that's used by other federal agencies and academia, and it allows us to integrate the best science, particularly from the academic sector, into a national tool that's used for forecasting, for prediction, for study, for analysis of the shared resource that is our nation's water. That's cool. That, that's um, and what you're describing is kind of the holy grail of hydrology in a lot of ways. And one of the ways that I wanted to dig into a little bit more is is kind of the difference between the physics that you need for hydrology and the data science that you need to implement it on, on uh, a scale like you're talking about and f- for answering questions immediately and of national need. Talk to me about the role of data science in that because I think we have uh, data science listeners and I think that would be interesting to them. Well, I will say the, the application of hydroinformatics has been something that I was not exposed to in my in my career, in my uh, my educational background. But working with some of the experts at universities like BYU, Utah State, uh, our colleagues uh, in the Consortium of Universities for the Advancement of Hydrologic Sciences, or QUASI, the backbone of what we're doing here at the Water Center is embracing the data sciences. Uh, I'll give you an example that 
the network that we chose uh, when we were began implementing uh, the National Water Model and its current formulation is based on the U.S. Geological and, and EPA's co-funded, co-sponsored, co-developed uh, National Hydrography Dataset. This networking system is effectively a, an addressing system or a roadway for your water droplet. Just like your GPS knows how to route your car from point A to point B across the highway street network of the country, the National Hydrography Network allows us to, a National Hydrography Dataset, allows us to know which rivers flow to which streams, at which nexus these they connect, what gauges, stream gauges they pass, that that information can be registered, how they may connect to wetlands. It's a massive data set. It's not only complex, but it's elegant. Some of the animations that we produce of previous years, hydrologic conditions, the observed or the analysis cycle from the National Water Model show the water pulsing through the nation. It almost looks like like a a heartbeat or, or blood flowing through the capillary system in the human body. It really does underscore that this nation, that the, that the water, our water resources really are the lifeblood of our nation, both through the economy, the safety, the navigation, recreation, all of those different areas. So that that's one of the data science pieces. Yeah, that's excellent. I can see that that image. And I think I have seen some of them, but I often, in writing for Forbes, describe the Mississippi as the cardiovascular system of the United States, you know, touches so many states and provinces in Canada and and really is seeing the Mississippi and those water droplets pulse through it is truly impressive. And so shifting gears a little bit on the practical side, tell me what, like if someone on the street who doesn't have a science background asks you, what does this center do for me? Can you give me a couple of examples of things that um, National Water Center has been involved in that you think would hit that drumbeat? So every year we release the Spring Flood Outlook. This is part of the nation's national hydrologic assessment. So that's a, a, a prediction that we produce with the 13 River Forecast Centers, and it looks at the probability of exceeding minor, moderate, major flooding for the for the spring flood period. And we use that information to help guide decisions made by other agencies, such as how they preposition resources or plan for activities that could range from a year like 2019, where there was massive flooding across the Midwest that uh, then kept the Mainstem Mississippi River at flood stage at Cape Girardeau, Missouri, for over 140 some odd days. So that's a practical application that kind of a, a look forward at the seasonal basis. The other one that I think folks will begin to see in the coming months and years is our flood inundation mapping capabilities. The National Water Center is on track to produce and release for the first time real-time flood inundation maps that predict, that show and illustrate the impacts of rainfall and runoff on flooding in somebody's neighborhood. The National Hydrography Dataset, which we just discussed, the creek that runs through my backyard here in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, is in that network. And as we release the flood inundation information, when those creeks are up and out of their banks, when there's flooding, that these flood inundation maps will show in a very practical, very easy way for folks to interpret where the floodwaters are, and more importantly, where they aren't. So in, in a couple of years' time frame, just like we see, we're used to looking at weather uh, move through communities on uh, National Weather Service uh, radar, weather radar uh, systems. We see the front approaching, and sometimes there's embedded severe storm cells or even tornadoes. We'll be able to show in real time and out through 10, five days, the uh, areas that are, are either at risk for flooding currently or projected to have to have floods, floodwaters on a map that's easy to interpret, consumable, and could be packaged up into an application on somebody's smartphone or in their car. That's awesome. 
So who do you think your primary clients are? I'm talking like a business person now, but, but you know, that was a question about a specific client, but in general, who, who are you serving data to? So we have a very strong relationship with the emergency management community. In fact, the work that we've been doing leading up to this public release of the, this, these flood inundation maps has really benefited our relationship with uh, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA. Uh, FEMA has come to us a number of times in these large-scale events, ranging from Hurricane Florence to uh, the very tragic flooding in Kentucky that occurred just last spring or last summer, with requests for information on how they can they can uh, maneuver and help respond and mitigate the flood impacts. Where they where do they need to send first responders, swift water rescue folks, deploy large-scale teams, and then in the event of these these tragic catastrophic floods, where they can send folks to go out and look and review. The, the storm damage so that they can quickly provide assistance to those communities. That extends to the local and regional emergency managers. In fact, our flood inundation mapping capability was uh, was first really highlighted in 2017 during Hurricane Harvey when the Texas Department of Emergency Management made the request of the National Weather Service Director at the time to help provide some of these early versions of, of flood inundation mapping to help the, the guide the response for truly an unprecedented event in the Houston metro area. So FEMA, FEMA is a big client, and that makes a lot of sense. One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot, and I wanted to ask you about, what we've been talking about is is events. You know, this event in your backyard. But last year we had record lows in the Mississippi, and it was a year when we had also record highs: the floods in K- Kentucky, like you talked about, the floods in Yellowstone, pieces of the Mississippi River in different places. What kind of products do you guys have that could help? communicate, I think, to the public, the second moment of climate change and how that's changing over time. So the variation. So there's a couple different pieces. One, in terms of the event scale analysis or event scale detection, we have developed and deployed something called the Hydrologic Ensemble Forecast Service. This is a technology that uh, characterizes the uncertainty in flows for the next for the next hour, six hours, 10 days, 30 days out for to about a, a full water supply year. Characterizing that uncertainty, particularly in the face of climate change, uh, certainly is is of interest and need for a number of decision makers on the high end of things, as we talked about with the floods, but also on the low end, uh, looking for the exceedance of low throw or the, the reaching of low flow thresholds is of, of critical importance. One of the other products that we work with here, we develop uh, that is more of that, you know, assessment of the climate is NOAA's uh, precipitation frequency atlases. The current version is called NOAA Atlas 14, and it's used by engineers uh, to design all manners of infrastructure. It's the the annual recurrence interval, or the one percent chance storm, or 0.02 percent rainfall event that you can expect at a point. We know, as you just mentioned. That climate change, shifting a warming climate, the atmosphere holds more moisture, which would lead to higher and more intense rainfall events. We're seeing that. Uh, so we produce NOAA Atlas 14. And fortunately, under the leveraging investments made by Congress in the bipartisan infrastructure law, we'll be able to update Atlas 14, something we will call Atlas 15, uh, to not only uh, provide a seamless continental, actually O-CONUS, N-CONUS scale, update to these precipitation frequency that's based on observations. So we'll include the last 20 some odd plus years of data that has not been included in Atlas 14. It will be seamless. And then Atlas 15 will also have a second volume. And this volume two will take into account the climate projection models and apply adjustment factors to 
the new information in Atlas 15 Volume 1 to create Atlas 15 Volume 2 that will have adjustment factors for various periods going forward in time as our climate changes, as precipitation patterns change, increase in some locations, potentially decrease in others. Those are sound like fabulous products. I want to ask you, this might seem like a silly question, but I want to ask it anyway. And I want to hear your reaction to how you would approach the answer. So I, you know, I got asked last year a lot, is the Mississippi going to become the Colorado when it was drought time in the Mississippi? And so the question is, if I ask you, is there going to be a drought again this year? How do you answer that question? Hmm. That is a tricky question to ask. Uh, and to answer. If you were asking me, is there going to be a drought again ever? The answer is yes. That's so much we know. There's one part hydrology to this question. There's another part population patterns, land use, land cover, and one part climate change. Um, Certainly as we see water being used in place, whether it be for more municipal use that may or may not be returned back into the waterways, we just have more people using our, our critical water resources, and that is the waters of the Mississippi. Um, I also think that uh, the shift in, in, in patterns uh, could certainly play a role in how much rainfall takes place over the Ohio Basin, which is really what the driver was from last year's drought. I also uh, would challenge my colleagues across the country to, to ensure that we have better precursor indicators. Low flow, a drought in a channel, may or may not lead to drought in these surrounding outside of the channel applications. That's I think That's a, a critical point right there, yeah. So, so this this low flow th- threshold, which is something I think we in the Weather Service, our partnership with our colleagues in, in local communities, not just emergency managers, but water managers, perhaps the, you know, the, the power generation folks, all manner of electric, electrical generation, usually with the exception of solar and wind, requires some form of water to turn into steam to drive our, our turbines. And so when plants can no longer take water out of the channel, we may not be in an agricultural drought, but are we getting close to something where, where our ability to manage, to harness the power of that resource, in this case, water in the channel, becomes uh, increasingly difficult because it exceeds some element of our engineering design criteria? I think that looking at low flows combined with this, now predict, this new predictive capability, our hydrologic ensemble forecast service, to better characterize the uncertainty both as the hydrographs climb and as, as they drop off, that certainly, I think, could help answer that question. There's a saying that floods will destroy a city, but droughts destroy civilizations. I think that risk is becoming more and more apparent as we move further and further into the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like in, in some ways the 100th meridian doesn't exist anymore. And there is a lot different hydroclimate north and south along the 100th meridian that makes that happen. Mm-hmm. So we talked about a couple of things. Couple of questions here, but they, we kind of touched on them briefly. But I want to dig into one of them: agencies. You have a lot of collaboration among agencies, and I remember at the White House Water Summit in 2016, I think when this center was announced, or maybe it was the National Water Model that was announced in the 2016 White House Water Summit um, as part of this. But I, but I remember that when it was announced, there was a lot of buzz about centralizing water data in the United States in a new agency. It sounds like you guys kind of do that. Talk to me about federal federation of water data resources in the United States and how you guys contribute to that. That is a great question. I think it is a recognition, not so much that there's been a centralized brand new infrastructure built, but we're speaking a common language. 
Uh, we talked about the, the nation's hydrofabric, the connectivity network that's based on the national hydrography data set that the USGS and EPA have developed. We were continue to take to leverage that in our work. And as we look at the next-gen water resources modeling framework, there's a movement led by our colleagues uh, at the U.S. Geological Survey, Dave Blodgett, Roland Vijay, uh, that they call it the, the high features data set. And it truly is a data standard that allows us to describe in a very common, uh, integratable fashion how the nation's rivers, waterways, streams, lakes connect and characterize them in such a way that when NOAA builds a data set and adds to it, or USGS does, or the EPA does for management of wetlands, or the Corps does to manage some of their projects, all that information, the richness and the robustness of that information can be brought back into uh, into that network. The other aspect of this that I'm extremely interested in and following closely is the work done by the Western States Water, Western States Governors Association and the Western States Water Council on their WADE data set. This is a a integration of multiple water uh, data sets that really look at consumptive use and water rights, well data. And so this ability to speak holistically and to integrate data sets, not necessarily centrally collect and manage, but integrate them, have databases speaking to each other, I think is is at the, at the, the center of this new federation of, of data, of water data, as you've, you've mentioned. And the other aspect of this, John, that, that I it would be remiss if I didn't point out, we're training a generation of hydrologists to be data scientists through some of the work that's being done at the university level, this notion of teaching hydroinformatics to undergraduates and graduates as part of their curriculum, not waiting until they get out into the field, whether in government or private sector, to learn about these types of ways of organizing, thinking, and leveraging data is truly, truly remarkable and necessary to that integration uh, network of, of things or network of networks, so to speak. Coming up, I talk with Ed about creating what he calls water intelligence, how new tools and technologies can provide better services to all communities, including those that are under-resourced, and how the National Water Center might help prepare the nation for the implications of climate change on human health. Well, you touched on a lot of uh, great issues there. Speak to different roles that I play in the water community and I'm interested in. I think the very first one is is data versus language. And I think, you know, if you have a dictionary in a foreign language, you can't speak it. Um, and that's kind of a, maybe a similar analogy to, you know, a data center versus a common language that integrates data across um, different cultures and different agencies at the state, the federal level, in the private sector. So I, I appreciate that. And I think the second point that um, really resonates with me is this training piece. Obviously, I'm at a university and that's what I do for a living. But it's you know something I've been saying for five or 10 years to my students. If, if you don't take a couple classes in AI, you're going to be behind. Um, you know, these are PhD students, and it doesn't matter what degree they're get they're taking. If it's ecology, hydrology, it doesn't matter. Um, that's going to be part of, and not just AI, but data science in general is going to be part of what we do in every discipline moving forward. And I think starting with it makes sense, like I think you're saying, or maybe I'm taking that a step further. No, no, you, no you, you've, you've hit it. You've hit it exactly on the head. And not to be too personal, but I, I have my own regrets that I didn't take data science classes or wasn't able to take data science classes 20, 25 years ago. The other thing that, that you said, John, that really resonates with me is that um, it, it's not, it's not just data. It's the it, it's the application of these new technologies and tools. You could have a lot of data, um, but what we're about, what 
in academia, here in the government, what we do, we strive for is to turn data into intelligence. And that means that we not only do we have a lot of data, but we have ways to harvest the data and make it meaningful. For example, the, the, the short-range version of the National Water Model, which is updated every hour and provides a forecast at 2.7 million locations, 3.4 million miles of rivers out through 18 hours, produces about a terabyte of data a day. There's no human being that can make sense of a terabyte of information. We have to employ hydroinformatics and data science. We also need to take that data science, what that, inf- that data that returns to us in the form of information, and have enough wherewithal, the understanding of the social, behavioral, economic sciences that drive the decisions that are being made around water, whether it be public safety, navigation, water resources management, to help our stakeholders go from being having data access to having water intelligence. And that's really been one of the challenges and also one of the hopes for the National Water Center is that we help create water intelligence for the country, that we we have the time, the resources to sit down with stakeholders and understand uh, what their challenges are, what their questions are, so that we can better uh, work with our partners, whether it be the private sector or the academic sector, to study, explore, develop new techniques and concepts to holistically, not just from the water center, not just from NOAA, but, but answer these water, uh, water challenges in the 21st century. Boy, I'm thinking about a television commercial for a startup in maybe in the water space, maybe in the climate data space. And their tagline is we take data and turn it into intelligence um, or water intelligence. I love that. I, I used to say data to information, but intelligence makes sense because um, it's, it's the interaction between humans and, and, and robots, if you will, the computer, the computer world that, that translates that into something useful for people. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I, and, you know, perhaps maybe in a future career, we may be partners in that startup. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. Um, the, other, the other topic, done, if, if it's okay, that I think is, is important to touch on is what, is what is a water center? What is tools like the water model? What does that do to better address some of the uh, dichotomies in, um, in how different communities are served by the government, by, uh, by water intelligence providers? Uh, one of the things we t- we've hit upon is the difference between the information, the guidance that comes out of the National Water Model, and the official forecasts that are produced uh, by the River Forecast Centers at those 3,600 3, uh, 3, USGS gauges uh, across the country. While those gauges are the gold standard, um, they are only about one-third of those are fully appropriated by Congress. The other two-thirds require some manner of community um, uh, partnership, whether that be state, uh, other federal agency, tribal, local government. And as you can imagine, if a community is under-resourced, underserved, they may not have those resources to be able to partner with the USGS on a gauge. One of the things we can do in collaboration with the USGS um, is, and with tools like the National Water Model and like the um, the, uh, the the next generation operational uh, or next generation water observing system or NGWAS that the USGS is doing is looking at ways to explore the integration of these observations onto networks like the hydrofabric to provide better res- better services to communities that may or may not have a actual uh, USGS gauge or a gauging station in their community. I try to explain this very esoteric concept by by asking folks who do this thought experiment. Imagine if the National Weather Service only provided a forecast at a commercially served airport. And so if you're sitting in 
let's take uh, my my adopted home state of Utah. If I'm sitting in Moab, Utah, uh, the forecast may be available at either Grand Junction, Colorado, or uh, Salt Lake City. Neither of which may be may or may not be representative of the weather that I I will be experiencing. Particularly not at the fine you know four kilometer scale uh, that I'm experiencing. So if if we were only providing uh, water information, water forecasts at these gauge locations, we we ignore or we don't have the opportunity to help serve uh, communities that simply don't have the infrastructural backbone to uh, to to support um, the traditional method of, of forecasting. So I, I think there's this notion of the, there's this intersection of these these hydrologic uh, or uh, informational sciences with networks, with observations, with models. That allow us to even go beyond and stitch together what we know with better ways to provide services for those that are potentially underserved. Boy, and that's very that that area that you described is very close to my former home in Arizona, and I know that that part of southern Utah, northern Arizona, um, on the north side of the Colorado River, is is so hard to explore, um, and also um, so native. There are so many tr reservations there. Um, there aren't cell towers in places. Um, they're, you know, getting data that that's exact um, to your tourist outing up a slot canyon or to your farm on a reservation is probably a tricky thing. And and it sounds like this data product has some, or set of data products that you've been describing. Many of them have some application in that space. And that that uh, that's great. Yeah, I think we have a responsibility as, as uh, government uh, agencies to do everything we can to integrate, you know, the investments that are made at, at multiple agencies, but to make that sure that the sum is greater than the the addition of the parts, or the whole mm -hmm. is greater than the sum of the parts. Mm -hmm. So shifting gears a little bit, um, this is a topic that I think about a lot, and I'll give you some context for it. When I was at ASU, I led an effort called Future H2O. Um, which was an academic enterprise um, dedicated to multidisciplinary science in the water space. And, and one of the things that I grapple with a lot is how much work do I do locally and how much work do I do at a bigger scale nationally or internationally? Um, and, you know, it seemed like the, the answer from, from ASU's president was, was yes. Um, and I get that um, because universities want to be good um, to their, uh, especially state universities to the the students they serve, but but also um, want to have a footprint that's larger than that. Talk to me about that footprint and how um, at University of Alabama the National Water Center balances that that teeter totter, shall I say, between local and larger scale um, endeavors. Yeah, so I mean, if I, if I had uh, my druthers, I would be able to, and my team and I, because we're naturally curious, we, we love water, we love rivers. Many of us got into this business, um, but because of our uh, experiences in outdoors, uh, reading, you mentioned uh, Beyond the Hundredth Meridian, Wallace Stegner's book on, on Powell's exploration of the of the Colorado is sitting on my bookshelf behind me. Um, the uh, the, the the question of of local versus national efforts, I mean, it always comes down to the impacts of our water challenges are profoundly local, uh, but they have national implications in terms of national security. With our partnership with the University of Alabama through something called the Cooperative Institute for Research to Operations in Hydrology, uh, which we just awarded last year, um, we we the University of Alabama and the Alabama Water Institute. Um, 
have taken a, a, a network approach. Again, just come back to this notion of networks of networks. Uh, Cairo, I got to phoneticize every acronym in, in, uh, in federal <laughs> government. But Ky- Cairo, uh, no, no relationship to that uh, small town on the river in uh, in Egypt. Cairo is a 28-member consortium of both uh, degree-granting uh, degree institutions, but also uh, private sector and NGOs, uh, non-governmental organizations. And so it, it's it, it's the attempt by the University of Alabama to have a footprint that is much larger. It really is at the the the, the, the national scale. We have. Cairo has member institutions with uh, from University of Hawaii at Manoa to Vermont to Alabama to Coastal Carolina. Uh, Arizona is included, as is uh, New Mexico, uh, Utah, Utah State, BYU, and I'm sure I'm leaving off many, many more. Um, but but that's that's the that's the goal here is to leverage the expertise uh, of multiple universities and institutions to understand to have a collection of knowledge, a collection of experts to tackle, to integrate, and to discuss what are really very local um, local problems, but have that national dialogue, have that national, national scale conversation. And the, the reason, I think, for doing a lot of this is, is twofold. One, you know, as, as you well know, hydrology is, is spread across, I think it's 135 different uh, universities that comprise the Consortium University for the Advancement of Hydrologic Sciences, or QASI. They're, they're in little pockets of departments here and there. The other aspect of this, so that's that's a unifying factor. The other aspect of this is what one PI may study at a university in, say, Vermont, um, certainly may have implications for another community, another researcher, or a graduate student, or a postdoc at the university in, say, the Central Valley of California. By having that that national dialogue about local issues, it creates the opportunity for those folks to become force multipliers of each other. That's great. That's that's an interesting model. I mean, I'm I'm grappling with the same set of challenges at Tulane because you know the challenges we have in Louisiana. You guys are close and you know the Mississippi River is part of that. The Mississippi River is a large part of your prediction engine. Um but but making that um more than a sample size of one has been something that's been a goal of mine my entire career. Um and so um I like the I, the notion of of um creating a local institution that thinks bigger um, rather than trying to link local and international or national, which is very hard, I think. It, it is. And I, and I, you know, we, we all struggle with this. It's how do we take the nuances of a very local challenge and make it of interest to those that aren't uh, impacted necessarily by it? We all sit back. I want to say sit back. But we watch sometimes in horror, sometimes in awe of the ways that folks in Louisiana respond to this this massively complicated uh, historical uh, relationship with the Mississippi River and the Gulf Coast. And yet, I can't help but think to myself and ask others who may not have those challenges today, how long, it's not if, how long until those issues become something that we deal with? How long until some of those issues uh, take place along the, the Alabama coast? How long until uh, lamb subsidence and sea level rise create issues along the eastern seaboard of the, the Atlantic coast that look a lot like what Louisiana has been battling for the last 50, 100 years? Good good answer and good um, follow-up on that. I like those. There's a lot to think about there. Um, this uh, go off script a little bit here and just ask a question about something that we've talked about before. Um, and it's 
it's the intersection between climate change and health. And and in talking to you about this, um, you kind of pointed to to activation of wetlands and floodplains. Talk to me about um, kind of how you, you would see a role for the National Water Center in in helping uh, the U.S. prepare for health-related impacts of climate change. So I'd love to take credit for this, but this is this is where you know it always pays to surround yourself by experts and by folks that are much smarter than you. And um, a lot of folks are much smarter than I am. And I'll give credit to this to my colleague and friend Dwayne Young uh, from the EPA, who really put this planted the seed in my mind a couple of years ago. We have this national hydrography network. Uh, we have a national water model that predicts water on that network. We have a flood inundation mapping capability that uh, that identifies when the water in that network has potentially gone up and over out of its banks, uh, uh, activating its wetlands. And we have a, a historical uh, analysis uh, that goes back 40 years uh, based on the work that we do. Every time we upgrade the national water model, we do this retrospective run. We also have climate scale models that can be applied to this, but even even just having an understanding of from a climatological, from a historical standpoint, developing a climatology around the activation of, of wetlands allows us to characterize, to take a snapshot, put a, put a place, uh, a marker in the sand, if you will, where we are today and versus where the frequency occurs in the future. Does it increase? Does it decrease? I think the answer is it probably depends on where you are. Uh, but that interaction with wetlands, I think, is is certainly uh, part of a system, a holistic, comprehensive, systematic approach that could allow us to begin to answer questions where there are implied relationships between the movement of water, where it comes from, where it goes, how it moves over the land surface, mm-hmm. what it entrains, and health issues. We're not there yet. And I think this, but but we have some of the building blocks that we can use to assemble and a system where there are uh, there's water knowledge, water intelligence uh, that can be integrated with other process models, whether it be vectors like insects uh, or you know, allergens from different kinds of vegetation that you could go it, on and on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I, you know, one of the joys of moving to the South, uh, particularly from the West, but even the Northeast is this notion of a pollen season where everything is covered in yellow dust. Uh, sometimes it's really, really bad. And sometimes it's, uh, it's not, it's not as terrible. And I have to believe that there is, um, in addition to all the historical context with uh, selective tree planting, um, it is uh, it is related to water. It all comes down to water in the end. Yep. Amen. A um, couple more questions here. This is super interesting, um, and I want to kind of keep it going for a little bit longer. Um, I'm thinking about diversity, inclusion, and equity at this point. Um, and, and more from the standpoint of um, technology penetration into rural communities that don't have the resources to have flood protection, flood prediction, to don't have the resources to have a congresswoman who's lobbying for them for their backyard because they're small and there are lots of small places like that. Um, are the products that, that you guys develop, are they accessible by – um, a small community in a rural agricultural area of 10,000 people, can they use that to, to plan? I think we haven't done a good enough job in this space. Uh, the, the, the data, the ones and the zeros that comprise the digital products are there. 
but it's my understanding, and I'm not a, a I'm not an an expert in, in these fields. But what I'm trying to understand, what my team and I are trying to understand, is how do these communities make decisions? How do they access information? There's likely, and so, and I don't want to under uh, discredit the cap- the ability for folks in these communities uh, who are exceedingly intelligent to have access to technology, but it's probably not as ubiquitous, ubiquitous as it would be in a, in a major urban area. Uh, computers may not be as prevalent. The training programs in high schools may not be there. Um, so I don't know that we've done a good enough job in making these in, in working with regional and local stakeholders uh, to to make that information available. We sh- we need to, and we 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 have we have uh, direction from Congress uh, through uh, Section uh, 14 of the Floods Act to actually develop a hydrologic fellowship program to train a set of, uh, create an education pathway that it does work more closely with historically underserved uh, colleges and universities to have that, that training. But but even before we get there, because that will take years and years to build, before we get there, how do we make a profoundly digital product accessible to somebody in a, in a local community? Um, two, there's two ways we can go about it. One is uh, this notion of extension agents uh, has to be holistic. Uh, and so maybe the folks that are doing agricultural extensions also have the same tools in their tool chest to talk about flood literacy, floodplain literacy. Uh, these are conversations that we're just beginning to have, but this notion of, of creating conversations around these, this space so that it's not just a, you know, a, a once in a, in a generational flood that brings these, these issues to the forefront of community uh, decision makers and planners, brings it to their minds, but it's something that they think about on a more routine basis. And that can be a, a, from the floodplain side of things. It can also be from the drought side of things. I believe that people fundamentally have a connection to their local uh, regional water. Uh, living here in Alabama on a commercial river, and uh, I, I have a new appreciation for the navigation industry and how just how much and how frequently our rivers really continue to this day to serve as the major arteries for transportation of goods and services. Um, it's really, growing up in the West, not really seeing any commercial traffic, particularly in the southwest, um, away from the, the Snake and the Columbia Rivers, not seeing any commercial traffic. It is really, really fascinating for me to see that here today. Uh, so there's there's that aspect. There's this, this notion of, of what are the what are the relationships that people have with water in their communities? How can we better inform that, understand, listen to them, hear them, um, and uh, then look for opportunities to think outside of the box to make sure that information is is not just data that's accessible through a website, but maybe is a set of maps that are printed and updated in a local library or uh, opportunities to speak with community leaders. And maybe those aren't elected officials. Maybe they're, they're religious leaders. Uh, maybe they're, they're folks uh, at, a, at a point of intersection, you know, like a, I think like a farm co-op. Um, how can we get that information to the right formats and in around the right contextualization of the question so that uh, that these communities are better served by these this these investments at the national at the national scale that's super interesting it's um, ambitious um, to pursue that and, I, and one thing that I'll say just kind of in summary is I mean you guys have the, the data infrastructure that speaks to the built and natural infrastructure systems that that guide water from where it falls down to to the ocean. But what's missing is the social infrastructure to make mm-hmm. that happen at the rural uh, level. Um, it, it, is that a pretty accurate summary? I think so. Yeah. The the I, I think we need to look at, at, at 
applying some of the things that we've been very good at with the networks of information on the physical and natural side and include as layers uh, the, the better ways to understand what the social networks are, the social infrastructure. And I don't mean social media, but I mean the actual social networks, the communities of folks who get together for coffee at a, at a crossroads um, who can convey you know, you know, different types of information that they may be exposed to so that it harnesses their network of contacts and friends and family members uh, to begin to provide uh, better better intelligence to, to answer these questions. We're, we're all at risk for water challenges, particularly as we get into a, a warming and a changing climate. Uh, these challenges are only going to get, get greater and they touch all of us. They impact all of us. Amen to that as well. A closing question. Um, so, and as a preface, um, I grew up in Colorado, fished in New Mexico, skied in Utah, trained in California, and partied in Las Vegas. <laughs> so I've been all over the West, all over the Colorado Basin. I know the differences between the states and how they view water. Um, I know, you know, what it means to be from each of those states. Tell me, being sort of self-proclaimed Utah, from Utah, tell me what you miss the most and least about the West. It could be about water or just something personal. Certainly, uh, I certainly a network of friends that I uh, that I grew up with on the rivers uh, in and around Utah, Colorado, Idaho. Um, those are those are river people are, are as as you may know, river people are friends for life. Um, what I don't miss, and what I've uh, you know during the pandemic, I was traveling back and forth to Utah to see a, a, a family member, um, and there was one period. I think it was June of two thousand twenty-one. Uh, when I flew into Salt Lake, and Salt Lake had evaporated so much from where it was when I was living in Salt Lake. Uh, my father and I used to enjoy going out to the Great Salt Lake together, and uh, large portions of it were gone. And it was June, and it was 107 degrees. Um, that was uh, shocking and, and alarming. But what 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 it made me recognize is the fragility of 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 water. Uh, uh, of water as it implies in that situation to water availability, water supply, but also the fragility of all of us as a nation to, to the, uh, to water challenges that impact us. Um, you know, it's a, it's a stark contrast to go from that June of 2021 to Utah's highest uh, snowpack uh, on record in, in 2023. I certainly missed that. Um, I'm not going to lie. I have a lot of jealousy there, um, but that, but, so it's not something that I miss, but it's something that, that, that the West is a, is a, a canary in the coal mine. Our fragility around water and water resources is just that we are extremely fragile. And I hope through you know the first director of something that we call the National Water Center, not the Alabama Flood Forecast Center or NOAA's Flood Agency, but the National Water Center, that we tackle, uh, that we, we, we begin to provide better services that, that address the range of threats to our nation's uh, security, our economy, floods, and droughts, and everything in between, and that we provide the intelligence uh, that decision makers need, that we create a, a literate uh, uh, culture, society around water-related water, water related issues, too much, too little, again, um, that allows us to, be, to take advantage of that intelligence when, when we can provide it. You and me are on the same page on that as well. Um, that's certainly the way that I'm hoping to build Bywater. And I want to take a minute here just to thank you for being on the show. Um, it's been a great conversation and um, hope we uh, cross paths very soon and start talking about ways to collaborate. Absolutely, John. This has been 
a really fun dialogue for me. Uh, and this is, I think you asked me earlier, what can we do? How can we, how can we move some of the, move the needle on this conversation like we just had today or the beginning and certainly That's can't right. be, certainly can't be the end. So I, I really appreciate your interest. All right. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Audacious Water. If you like the show, please rate or review us and tell your colleagues and friends. For more information about Audacious Water, visit our website at audaciouswater.org backslash podcast. Until next time, I'm John Sable.